to a special edition of the One America podcast. This is your host, Sophia Nelson. I have a great guest today and great topic as we wind up 2020. What a year. I thought it would be important to have someone on who's an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I have a great guest for that. I want to set the table a little bit before I bring her on and And then uh, we're going to have a great dialogue that I think is going to be very uh, powerful and helpful. Uh, As you know, 2020 has been quite the year. COVID aside, uh, this nation uh, banded together and indeed all over the world with the horrific murder of George Floyd that was caught on video. A police officer literally putting a knee on his neck until he choked the life out of him witnessed by people standing there, witnessed by the world. It brought us together. And in some ways, it aired and uncovered some of the ugliness of our history. Uh, The racism, uh, the racial inequities, the systemic bias, the two different Americas that still exist in 2020. And our next guest, Minda Hartz, is an adjunct professor at NYU's Wagner School of Public Policy. She is a best-selling author of a great book that you should buy, The Memo. And she's also CEO of my my work memo, my weekly memo. Sorry about that. I'll get her to clean that up in a few minutes if I got that wrong. See, this is what happens when you're old and you can't see anymore. But at any rate, Menda, how are you? Hey, Sophia. Good to be here. Thank you. I know you're laughing at me, right? <laughs> <laughs> What, what, what is it that you're CEO of? I can't read my own raggedy handwriting. Oh, so it's the memo, okay. LLC. Okay, very good. <laughs> um, I want to make sure we get that right. Before we get started, Minda, tell people where they can find you on Twitter and social media. Yeah, the most place I'm active at is at Minda Hearts on Twitter. And then you can follow me on LinkedIn, Minda Hearts. Okay, great. So let's get right into it. I set the table. Um, before I get into... Uh, my questions. Give me your thoughts from just a reflective place of 2020 relative to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, that's a great question, Sophia. And I think about what is uh, one famous writer said: "It was the best of times; it was the worst of times." Mm. I, I think that I think that pretty much sums up what the workplace uh, felt like. Uh, as definitely as a woman of color, as a black woman, but I think that we saw a lot of strides, um, but we saw a lot of performative action as well. But on the optimistic side of the house, I think that we started to open up Pandora's box and have those conversations out loud that we needed to have for a long time. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. The best of times and the worst of times, that's Dickens. So uh, it's powerful, it's appropriate for this time of year. And um, I think that as we reflect back, as history reflects back on 2020, it is going to be a watershed year of, of first, of breakthroughs, of setbacks, of revelation, of people becoming more tribal, people deciding to unite uh, in solidarity. What a conflicting, conflicted, powerful year 2020 has been. Um, First question, tell me about your book, The Memo, and why you wrote it. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. So The Memo was really, I wrote it as a love letter to, to Black women because I think oftentimes our voices are not heard in the workplace. And so 
as many of your listeners probably know, we talk about women really well in the workplace, but we, we don't always include every single woman when we say that word. And so I spent 15 years in corporate America as the only one, only black woman in the room. And it gets isolating and it gets lonely. And after a while, at least for myself, I started to settle into microaggressions. I started to settle into bias and tell myself that this is just what it's going to be like for you, Minda. So just settle in and put your seatbelt on, right? And, and you you start to lose certain pieces of yourself and you start to question um, racism, right? When, when you know it's what it is, but you just don't maybe want to say it out loud. And so I wanted to write, um, a, I guess, a counter argument to Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In um, and say, here's what it's like for for women of color and black women when we try to do that. And that's what made me uh, want to write the book. Uh, Toni Morrison said, write the book you want to read. And so that's exactly what I did. Well, you know, for me as a woman who is uh, much your senior, um, who wrote 10 years ago uh, this May, Black Woman Redefined, uh, Dispelling Myths and Discovering Fulfillment in the Age of Michelle Obama, which was likewise me having the same reaction as a lawyer in a big law firm, um, having worked on Capitol Hill as the only black female committee counsel on either of the sides at the time I was there, whether it was Democrat or Republican. And um, the abject isolation that you feel as a black woman, as a woman of color, I saw very few, if any, Hispanic Latina sisters, no indigenous sisters. And I was in a firm that had a big uh, Indian affairs practice. Uh, And uh, we had maybe one or two people come through in my time there. And um, it was disheartening to say the least. And you're right, you know, one of my least favorite things about Lean In, which I think is a, a decent book, but it really was about white women and their experiences. And whether it's Annie Applebaum writing for The Atlantic or Anne-Marie Slaughter and all these other women, white women who have these powerful platforms, when they say uh, women, they mean white. They might not think that they do, but the presumption is in America is when we say black, we mean male. And when we say white, we mean female, right? And we get left out of that discussion entirely which is not new because that dates back to uh, pre uh, 13, 14, 15th Amendment. Uh, People often mistake that black people got the right to vote with the 15th Amendment. No, black men got the right to vote. And so although we're black people, I like to say that black women have the burdens of both race and gender with neither of the benefits, white women being, of course, white and black men being male. So I applaud your efforts, but what's disappointing to me as someone in her 50s now is that I don't see this changing and it should be changing. And I wanna get into that because as you know, my next question, good lead in is the George Floyd effect is what I call the, the George Floyd reflex. When the George Floyd murder happened, you had a bunch of corporations all the major companies from Nike to Xerox to IBM to Viacom to Comcast, you name it, um, all uh, say they were donating money you know, to the NAACP, other causes, people start writing checks. But my question to you is, how much is this George Floyd effect 
uh, going to have on equity and inclusion, and, and particularly for women of color at the table, and men of color too, for that matter. Yeah, absolutely, because we don't see, you know, they're not represented uh, either in the in the levels that they should be. But you know, I, I think that what those companies did by giving money or making public commitments, I think that's great. But as as the saying says, yes, and 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 so what we know to be true is that um, black lives have to matter not just outside of the company, but they have to matter inside the company. And I think that we won't really be able to tell what that means. Um, you can't say that the black person outside that doesn't work for you matters uh, if you're not treating your black women or black people or people of color the right way by paying them equally, right? <laughs> by uh, making sure that the About Us pages um, look like the demographics that you serve and so for me the real test uh will be next year and the years to come you know do we really see uh the numbers changing because many of those companies put out their diversity numbers and we see if little to no movement in the in the process and even now you're seeing some of these initiatives where we're companies are making public statements saying hey you know we're going to start investing millions of dollars into people of color who don't have college degrees which i think is really great right these are things that we need but what about the people who are already there you know what about their advancement what about their retainment and so i think we're going to have to solve i think they are going to have to solve multiple problems at once but i think just like anything you have to identify what the problem is so i'm glad we're all understanding not just black people because we've known what the problem is but i'm glad that the dominant majority is ready to acknowledge that as well so you know we can only get better from here in my opinion yeah um uh, two, two thoughts on that one you said something profound and one of the things that has bothered me is particularly and this dates back to our founding most white people who are your neighbors the people you work next to in the office you go to coffee with you have lunch with your kids might play together most white people pre-George Floyd were pretty clueless in the sense of yeah I mean I know there are inequities I know racism exists but it doesn't really touch me or my life so it's not something I really think about and gee I have these nice black people that live next door or down the street and our kids play together and you know they're professionals like we are and they live in a nice neighborhood like we do so it can't be that bad and I think what bothers me is you touched on this these companies had an immediate and appropriate response to the horror of what happened to George Floyd in terms of police brutality, systemic bias in our systems of uh, whether they're educational, whether they are governmental, whether they're in in our systems of uh, policing, fire departments, etc., whatever they are. And the response seems to only be engaged when the most horrific of things happens, right? So in other words there was this wake-up call because white america and indeed white people around the globe saw something happen on a video that shocked their conscience it didn't shock our conscience as black people it didn't surprise us because it's been going on for a really long time and my point is is that i think that there's this disconnect Minda, between white people seeing racism as only when somebody black gets lynched or there's a firebombing of a church or Dylan Roof goes in and kills black people in a church worshiping or George Floyd versus like you talked about microaggressions and the day-to-day things that really do a lot of damage to people professionally, emotionally, 
spiritually. Can you talk about that a little bit? That that dividing line of that it seems that our white brothers and sisters only react when there's something horrific that happens, but they're kind of okay with the day-to-day racism and things that the microaggressions and things that they may or may not be aware of. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where the problem has always lied, you know, that it's easy to see if we're on a spectrum, right, of harm, that if George, if the George Floyd situation or Breonna Taylor is at a 10 for, for white people, they don't look at the the pain point of the everyday three in the work or the four or the five or getting mixed, you know, every time you call me by the wrong name, no, that's mm-hmm. the other black woman in the office. Like they don't see those things as the mm-hmm. same, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that those are the things that we actually have to talk about because those are the small um, cuts that become a lot of harm and a lot of racial trauma. So I think it's one thing that we don't talk enough about is, yes, Bob may not have meant any harm, but it is causing harm, right? And so let's talk about the day-to-day things where, you know, you're calling me the wrong name or you, I had a manager who saw that I had burnt orange fingernail polish and he made a comment. Uh, Again, I'm the only black woman in the room and he made the comment, you people love your bright colors. And he joked around for 15 minutes about how black people like bright colors. You know, I had white people there. Nobody said anything, nobody did anything like, that's just as insidious as any other form of racism right? yeah yeah and it makes you less than particularly when you're the only person in a room and that somebody feels entitled to single you out like that first of all it's just wholly inappropriate in the workplace whether it was a disabled person a person of color a female you know a male of color whatever it is but the permission and the privilege to do so is what we deal with on a day-to-day and I'm sure that we could swap a lot of stories about things I never forget working in a a big big 10 law firm Um, and one of my sorority sisters who worked in litigation uh, which is one of the course always anchors of any big law firm uh, the only black woman but very afrocentric had her braids and you know there's this whole thing about hair and you're talking you talk 15 years ago now, almost maybe 20 years ago, right? And uh, they warned her a couple times that clients weren't comfortable with her dress and her hair. And I was like, wow. And she ultimately quit and sued them and got a very nice settlement in which she started her own law firm and is very successful. But it's that kind of stuff that all white males who were her bosses and should have been her mentors because she was brilliant harvard you know amazing resume and all they could see was her hair Mm -hmm. all they could see was that she liked to wear african patterns in her clothing always professional but that wasn't their standard talk about what that does um why does it matter because maybe we need to help some of our listeners our caucasian brothers and sisters what what, why is that a no-no why why shouldn't you do that to people first of all you know it's it goes back to exactly what you said this idea of what's professional and what's not and I think that the trouble that many of our white colleagues get in is because they think that they get to write the rules and describe what what is professional um prime example of this um a young woman she said that her manager on zoom said oh it's good to see that you got your hair done Keisha and the CEO said this on a zoom call but she had been wearing her hair and twist 
for the last six months. This this recently, she had her hair blown out. So again, our, her hair was already done, but to the dominant majority, it didn't look professional enough. Therefore, it wasn't. And I think that is the the problem is that a lot of companies say, bring your authentic selves to work. But whose version of authenticity are you talking about? <laughs> right? And so Black people, people of color, we don't get to bring our versions of ourselves um, because we're policed in many different ways, not just on the streets, but in the workplace. And I think that you know, white people, if they really want to be allies, which I think a good majority of them do, then they have to look at themselves, look at the actions, look at the harm, even if it's unintentional, that's being caused to people of color, not just in 2020, but on beyond. And and the other thing that I want to say, Sophia, is even just the conversation that we're having now, you have so many white people who before never wanted to talk about racism in the workplace. And now because they're ready to talk about it, black people should be willing and ready and able yep. at their back call. And it's like, no, that's not right. how this works, right? So even right. just humanizing the workplace, right? Understanding um, that this is an issue and that, again, we can't center you because now you want to talk about it. So I think it's, there's a lot of relationship building that has to take place before we can actually get to some real solutions. Yeah, I mean, a couple thoughts on that. You know, um, if you were to ask that CEO, he would think he was giving her a compliment. That's the bad news, right? Yeah. He would really be like, oh my God, no, I just meant she looked really nice. And, and he would be horrified yeah. that we are sitting here discussing the fact that because her hair was pressed and blown out and more uh, white culture, more acceptable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that he he thought her hair was done in that before it wasn't done. Yeah. Uh, wow. So yeah, like I said, we could trade a lot of stories. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that uh, we talked about the George Floyd effect, which seemed to have pushed our white brethren globally to be outraged and to march and do all those things. You saw Senator Mitt Romney, you saw a lot of members of Congress, you saw a lot of different people who wouldn't ordinarily be seen marching uh, in protest do so. Um, what about the Trump effect? What has been the Donald Trump effect on race relations and in corporate America over the last four years? You know, depending on, you know, what I side of the aisle people sit on even if you are not a Trump fan I think we and, and and this isn't something new I know people have said it but I think we needed to be able to see the ugliness of the country in order to say hey we can do better what does good look like right this is not where we want to be and I think you are we get to now decide what type of workplace we want to create and we realize that just like this country um, you mentioned at the top of the hour was we're living in two Americas, many of us, right? So what does it mean for um, for us to come together and what's it going to take? And, you know, even with some of the legis some of the rulings that were coming through with, you know, no racial bias training, no DNI type of training that the administration um, tried to, to, to yeah, put into motion. I mean, you were seeing all of that. I have, you know, good colleagues who um, a good portion of their business went down because they could no longer serve in those government contracts and I think that when you see blatant acts of racism mm -hmm. it really does show you hey mm -hmm. we can be better and we can do better and so I think that the Trump effect has shown us that we can do better and we have to talk about race and I think because just like George Floyd you mentioned and, and Donald Trump both of those compounded has shown us 
the ugly side of this country. And I think there's more people who know that we have the capacity to be better and to be better humans. And so I think that you're seeing um, more initiatives and more intentionality around these conversations, not just a one and done, but say, you know, let's continue on. You know, this isn't something we can solve in a in a 90 minute Zoom call, right? This is gonna take a little bit more than that. And I think that people, for the most part, are willing to uh, start to educate themselves and realize that yes, there are systems of oppression that built this country. And the only way that we're gonna fix them is if we all uh, work together, not just put the burden on black people. Well, I think a couple things. Um, I think the Trump effect is, I think you're being kind and I appreciate you for that. But the Trump effect, uh, for example, when the president of the United States of America says no more critical race theory, not sure that that's what anybody was teaching, by the way, that's usually taught in academia, you know, like what you and I do or Cornell West or somebody lecturing on it. But he considered diversity and inclusion and put out statements like it was abuse to subject people to diversity training. Abuse. How? That is some deep language and to say I'm getting rid of this because people should not be subject to this is is really saying that uh, the rest of you who are not Caucasian and not in the majority you need to be subject to what we do and what we give you and how we want to talk about you and how dare you subject us to learning more about who you are and what your culture is and that you're a part of the American story too and so this these people that you see with their guns and in their tribal mentality and they want to secede from the union i mean uh you know the fact that we're having secession talk in 2020 yeah okay 2020 now folks we're in the 21st century we are not in the 19th century when the civil war broke out and if you put that in its context and look at the fighting that we've seen over confederate monuments in fact robert e lee's bust was moved from the Capitol at four o'clock this morning. Virginia voted, my Virginia voted to uh, get rid of Lee and hopefully we're gonna put the the legendary civil rights leader, Barbara Johns uh, in his place in Statuary Hall in the Congress. And they took it away and I promise you, there's folks here now ready to burn stuff down. They love those Confederate monuments. They love those traitors. They love the people who sold out the union because they wanted to keep slaves. And that's where we are in 2020, sis. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but for me, this has been a real wake up call as to those two Americas I spoke of. And the fact that some of the people are not people that, you know, you stereotype as rednecks, you know, with their, with maybe they've got the, the, the Confederate flag on their chest and maybe they've got a MAGA hat on or whatever and they're chanting something crazy. These are people we work with, mm-hmm. go to school with, live next door to, have glasses of wine with, celebrate, you know, birthdays with. They supported this. You know, 74 million people voted for four more years of this. And and I'm really curious as to what you think about the intersection of race and politics in the 2020 election cycle and, and the fallout that we've seen since. Yeah, I think that I mean, you hit it on the on the head. I, I I wish I had like my tambourine here in the background that I could. <laughs> <laughs> you can send me an offer later. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it's true. I mean, listen, I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't concerned with what the outcome of this election was going to to lead to because I didn't think enough white people were concerned about where this country could potentially head. And so that 
as a practitioner, as someone who does a lot of work, uh, equity work, it worried me. I was very, very concerned about that because again, two things can be true at the same time. One person can say, oh, that's a shame uh, and not feel any way about it and say, yeah, that was a shame what happened to Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or Aunt fill in the blank. But because it doesn't do anything in their neighborhood because they're not affected by it because they can go to sleep at night and not worry about where their son might be or or may never come home then that's not a reality to them right but as a person of color as a black person in this country i was nervous as heck you know i was really concerned um it was the first time in my life that i had been worried like i stopped taking my walks um you know in the afternoons because when i'd see a big truck um walk by i was worried and i had never felt that way and so you know i think that the effect is yes we do have a new president and very much or soon we'll have one it's much needed but the residual effect the racial trauma is what really i'm worried about in all of us going forward because there's a lot of um hitting anxiety and visible anxiety um that have sat in our bodies and our limbs and our mouths over this last four years and so that's really my concern and I hope that companies will continue to be courageous and move forward because what we saw to be true is when I before uh, 2020 I used to work with a lot of companies and they would say oh Minda we don't have a budget to do that right now that's about three to five years off and then this year they were able to they had their own little operation warp speed right they were able to move the needle and weeks right things that they said they couldn't do so i'm excited to see everyone hold these companies and ceos accountable because if you were able to move the needle this fast this year think about what we can do in the years right i want to wrap us with um we've kind of set the table we know what it is but i want to wrap with some solutions and what is our part to play in this as women and women of color men of color and, and then the institutions, we've talked a little bit about that as corporations, but uh, one of the things that I think we can be hopeful about is that after 242 years as a republic, uh, we have a woman vice president who will be sworn in in just 30 days, my sorority sister, Kamala Harris, who I'm super excited about. She also happens to be a woman of color, both Indian and uh, South Asian and African American descent. So she's very unique. She has a Jewish husband, blended family, kind of represents the 21st century professional woman, you know? Uh, Talk a little bit about, A, what's our part in this? How do we help to bring equity and inclusion to our workspaces, our communities, et cetera? And what's gonna be the impact of having a Kamala Harris as the second most powerful person on earth, uh, Joe Biden's lieutenant? Yeah, you know, I'm happy that I'm alive to see um, this take place because I think what it signals to the world not, uh, and to our country is that uh, women of color are leaders, right? And I think that, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that this is probably the first time in our history where a woman of color has made it to the Absolutely. table before a white Huge. woman. And you and know, you know <laughs> let's pause there. So let's put a pin in that. That's a that's an aha moment. Um, you know, yeah. Amy Klobuchar gets a lot of credit from me as a white woman who everybody knew that Biden was really keen to look at Klobuchar. She was from the Midwest. She's a woman, a U.S. senator, been a prosecutor. 
she was really going to help him run that center, middle of the road, you know, kind of appeal to get those Midwest white voters back, right? And Amy Klobuchar got on national TV and said, I'm taking my name out of the running because it's time for a woman of color. Black women are the backbone of this party. And then, you know, it forced Elizabeth Warren to have to take that posture and others. Uh, And I think she made a bold move there because let's face it, I fully expected, as I'm sure you did, a white woman to be our first female vice president. Uh, Geraldine Ferraro had been nominated in 84 and Sarah Palin in 2008. Thank God she didn't become VP. At any rate, uh, but you get my point. Um, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's a huge, we, we, we made a leap. And Joe Biden gets the ultimate credit for that, of course, uh, because he gets it. But yeah, I mean, what do you think the significance of that is briefly, you know, in the whole intersectionality argument? Yeah, I think it's the perfect, the quintessential um, picture of allyship because I know that's a huge word and people like to use it. So to see a white man, man, he chose a woman of color to be his um, second in command. And I think that that gives permission to white men who hold positions of power in corporate America and nonprofit spaces to have a, another look at us, right? We are not oftentimes considered the obvious winner, right? But when you pull back um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's resume, you see that she's, this isn't a charity. This is, she's earned very the, the right to, to, to do this, A lot right? more qualified than a whole <laughs> lot of so, our vice presidents that have served, trust me. Yeah, so I think to show, like to dismantle all these myths that, you know, we only get positions because we're this or, and not because of our expertise. I think that dispels a lot of that myth. And I think it also shows women of color that even though, yes, you're tired, right? You, you might've been looked over for another promotion or this, that, and the other, but there are spaces and tables that we can either build or create or join that want us there. And I think that we can take that energy into the new year with yes, us. I think that's right. Um, so what what's our part as women and women of color and men of color to hold our, our, our workplaces to the standards if we're in academia if we're in industry if we're in tech what 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 is our what is our part in this moment yeah I think part of it is that the courage uh, for so long many of us didn't feel like we had the agency to say what we need and hold our companies accountable because we've been walking on eggshells or we've told ourselves that you know this is just the way it is and I think we see the tide is shifting and this is the opportunity. Like if we don't seize it right now, um, then I think we miss an opportunity to advance the culture. And so if your company is asking you, what does good look like? What can we do better? You know, here are some committees we're hosting. Be a part of those. Get your seat at the table. Let your voice be known. And I think we can't stand by. And I think that's right, right folks. I've been talking to uh, Professor Minda Hartz, NYU Wagner Public Policy School. She's an adjunct there. Um, and teaches a talent course. And, and by that, when we're talking in the context of human resources, she's a person who helps companies uh, diversify their workforce. Uh, equity and inclusion is what she does. Her book, her best-selling first book, The Memo, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere books are sold. 
great Christmas gift, great New Year gift for uh, the new college grad in your life, uh, somebody going to get their master's, uh, some of your friends in corporate, work at the local chamber of commerce, business, whatever it is. And uh, make sure you follow her. Minda, tell folks where they can find you again on social media and with your weekly, um, whatever your weekly report is that you do. Yes. So thank you again for having me. Appreciate how you hold space for us, Sophia. You can find me on Twitter at Minda Hearts, LinkedIn at Minda Hearts, and then also Minda Thank you again so much. Keep doing what you do. You and I are not done yet. Like I said, I believe strongly in that older woman, younger woman model. Uh, You know, I think that mentoring is a two-way street. I've got mentors that are reverse mentoring in their 20s, late 20s in corporate, and I help them. And and they teach me things that I don't know the language of or whatever. And uh, I think it's so important that those of us who have been in many cases, certainly if we're women of color, we were trailblazers and it was hard, it was very hard. And we took a lot of abuse and a lot of disrespect and it was very lonely. And we sacrificed a lot in our personal lives as well that we didn't, no one gave me that memo when I was 18 or 22 or going to law school and said, yeah, you're gonna sacrifice a lot Uh, if you want to be a professional woman, particularly a black woman. And so I think that's why Kamala's election is so powerful uh, because she teaches us that you can navigate it and you can still have love, you can still have a family. It may look different than what you envisioned as a young woman, but um, I love her husband, Doug. I think he's awesome. And uh, I love that he supports her, you know, and he's in her corner. And I think we as black women don't get that a lot either uh, from the men in our lives. And I think that's so important, but I think that's another podcast for another day. So uh, again, thank you for coming on. Appreciate you. And you and I have a lot more to do. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay, bye-bye. Me too. Thank you.